Hello and welcome to this Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF was founded by Edward Blad to represent the cream of independent investment research providers to institutional investors. The IRF revenue shares with our providers, so there's no additional cost to investors. I'm JP Smith, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Mike Harris, founder of Cribstone Strategic Macro. Now, Mike is somebody I've known for a long time. He's been involved in the financial markets and specifically in Turkey for around 30 years. Prior to founding Cribstone in 2017, Mike spent 24 years as sell-side analyst and strategist and a head of research for Emerging Europe. And during that time, he was ranked number one in institutional investor surveys and unprecedented 22 times. I have to say I'm a little jealous of that. I was ranked number one once, and so it doesn't really stand much comparison. These uh, awards were for his work both as an analyst and strategist across emerging Europe, Central Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And he's got a particularly strong track record in Turkey, which accounted for 13 of these 22 number one rankings. Now, Turkey, is extremely topical at the moment. It was one, if not the best performing equity market last year. And the election, first round of the election has just taken place. So Mike is going to discuss the ramifications of that and the prospects for a possible second round. And also then we're going to look at how investors, examine how investors should approach the Turkish market. Because it's one, frankly, and Mike will correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of foreign investors have, have ignored over the last two or three years and progressively reduced their weighting. So we'll come on to that. But first of all, Mike, I think you're going to go over the first round of the election results. Sure. Thank you, JP. Thanks for the intro. I think the short and sweet is we're going to a second round election. If you would have gone back six months ago, four months ago, you would have thought if we can get Erdogan to a second round, that's absolute victory because then it increases the likelihood he loses. We had a strange phenomenon, partially because of the opposition's approach by consolidating around one candidate instead of running many candidates, that they set the bar of almost succeeding or as a minimum coming in ahead of Erdogan in the first round to have momentum into the second round. So they've disappointed because the Kilic Darolu, the opposition candidate, has, has fallen four percentage points short of Erdogan and Erdogan just under 50 percent. So uh, it almost, you know, Kilic Darolu, now the opposition is the underdog. So in a way, out of succeeding in forcing the second round, they've failed with the narrative. And if Erdogan wins... People will not question the democratic legitimacy of that, which had he surprisingly won today, for instance, they might have, and you could imagine a scenario where there'd be some sort of protest or, or some sort of dissent. So Erdogan is very well positioned as we go to this second round, which isn't great for the market fundamentally. As you mentioned, it was pretty uninvestable for these last few years, and that's basically been because of Erdogan's policies. So unless he recalibrates tremendously, the optimism or the hope that uh, investors have been expressing towards re-engaging with Turkey post the election uh, looks highly likely to dissipate. Can I just ask you, Mike, because if this was Russia, and obviously whilst there are similarities between Erdogan and, and Putin, it, this election does seem fundamentally different in that I haven't seen any suggestions of sort of gerrymandering the vote. Is it generally regarded as having been a clean vote? Yeah, Turkey's, you know, I always stress test this with people and I've been talking with people who are you know, election monitors and have very, very strong views about and, and very strongly opposition supporters. They just don't see it as possible that the, the vote can be rigged. 
So what the, the simple narrative is basically the playing field is rigged. All of the, the media, all of the access to state resources, the court case against the Istanbul mayor, which basically scared the opposition from putting him on the ticket. So he, he, he creates an unbalanced playing field, but the actual vote seems to be beyond dispute, maybe is the, is the way to say it, even though you would have thought if, if the intelligence services with the ability to tap other you know, friendly intelligence services, if you task them with, okay, let's figure out a way to steal this election without people knowing uh, we've stolen the election, you'd like to think some people would come up with some good ideas. But the bias, uh, and, and this is important because it means the opposition can't build around that narrative of the election having been stolen. So it creates that democratic legitimacy of the outcome. Because Erdogan is sort of, is it fair to say he's marginally outperformed expectations, right? I mean, he's done a little bit better than most people expected and good enough almost certainly to put him back into power. Do we have any indication where the by region or by class yet where his sort of extra support came from? No, so we should get full granularity on that. I don't think it comes out for a better part of a week. So this is a new scenario where you go to the second round election. So that data, when it's published, could end up you know, influencing the idea that, oh, wow, there is disproportionate strength in one region. Maybe that does look a little fishy or, or whatnot. But on balance, I, I would suggest that almost any opposition leader would have gotten 45 percent of the vote, which is what Kilic Darulu got. Despite he ran a fantastic campaign. But one of the things that arguably he faced, and it's, it's something that, I mean, seemed pretty obvious to me at the time when they chose him, he is not like the, the average person who is a practicing Muslim, whose wife wears a headscarf, whose daughter wears a headscarf, who has been an Erdogan supporter, not someone who's extreme nationalistic, that's a separate audience, but someone who is socially conservative, I don't think can identify with Kılıç Darolu. So I've been making the comparison that Kılıç Darolu, a lot of people didn't like the fact that he was an underwhelming sort of Michael dukakis sort of character, if, you, if, if anyone remembers him. But I also think he had the negatives of Hillary Clinton, where Hillary Clinton, you know, whatever you thought about her, there were just plenty of people that would absolutely never, never vote for her. Now, he didn't, Kulich Darlu didn't have personal negatives. He's quite a benign, friendly guy. But he represents a party that has historically been so hostile to practicing Muslims that you can imagine very easily that they wouldn't vote for him. And guess what? It looks like they simply didn't. And had there been a candidate on leading the opposition that was someone that socially conservative voters could identify with, we could then maybe interpret this election as more a more a conscious view as to whether um, of how polarized society is and how willing they are to vote against Erdogan. Arguably, the opposition didn't give a, a con- socially conservative Turk an opportunity to vote against Erdogan. And where they did, it was for this nationalist candidate Sinan Oğan, who, who, who got 5% of the vote and surprised people to a degree, but that may just be uh, some of the vote that wasn't comfortable voting for either Erdogan at Kilic Darlu, at least in the first round. So we have obviously the religious factor, if you like, and, and the sort of perceived unattractiveness perhaps of that candidate to the Anatolian hinterland, right, Mike? Yeah, and, I, and I'd use the term socially conservative more than religious in a sense. I mean, they're, they're aligned, but this isn't pure religion driving it. And that trumped the sort of economic factors, because looking at it from outside, as it were, the sort of incredibly high rates of inflation, do, do they impact the countryside less than they impact people in the town? Because maybe people in the countryside are more able perhaps to produce their own food, or they're perhaps beneficiaries in some ways of, of rising prices, or is it just that the inflation factor just took second place? 
Yeah, I would say the, the basically Erdogan needed growth, and inflation was a consequence of that growth. And the, what he kept doing it was this, it was a sort of a, a hamster wheel of raising wages because there's no investment because the wages basically pass through immediately because the minimum wage is basically eighty percent of the national wage. Minimum wage now, which is adjusted annually, is effectively national wage policy. And so Erdogan has been using wages as a political tool for a long time, and it finally burned him when we had this explosion of inflation. And so he's just been constantly raising wages to adjust, and he had multiple increases up until the latest was a 45% increase in the pension, not the minimum wage, just a week before the election. So he's constantly been trying to compensate, and to a degree it works. But the bigger problem is, so what he's done effectively, he's mortgaged a bit of Turkey's future because he's borrowing FX like crazy and, and selling geopolitical favors to the Saudis and Russians in exchange for foreign exchange. Because the, the weird thing about this high inflation environment and why Turkey's been one of the best performing markets in the world in the last year was the inflation was running at you know 80%. Now, now headline at least is in the 40s, but, but it's you know, very high levels of inflation and no currency weakness. And so it, that, that's been his pre-election mantra. Turks will, will respond to currency weakness as a sign of crisis. To inflation, they're probably more just thinking about their own personal affordability. And he's had a, a compensatory mechanism. I mean, people obviously are in pain and, and life is not easy. But when you get a 50% pay rise twice a year, you can sort of adjust to it. It's a little like how, how all of Turkey lived in the 1990s. Everyone got you know, annual wage adjustments to totally compensate for inflation. So it's almost in a sort of way, Mike, a bit like a universal basic income in that sense, is it? Yeah, it's a minimum wage, so you have to be working. But yes, very much so. You mentioned support from Russia and from Saudi. So is this covert support that's coming in from the Gulf, a lot of it, to a sort of fellow Islamic nation that's happening? Or is this all completely transparent and, and visible in the data that you see? It's not transparent totally. I mean, the Saudis deposited money at the central bank, but it was less about religious affinity because actually the Saudis and Turks you know, got along terribly because Erdogan was supporting the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood you know, the, and the Egyptian alliance with the Saudis. So it was a, a recalibration post the killing of Khashoggi and Erdogan's realization that he needed more, let's call them autocratic allies that would be more tolerant of his, his efforts to hijack Turkish democracy. And with Russia, he's you know been getting huge support both from the nuclear construction cost as well as the um, gas payments, which have you know I, my understanding is basically Turkey has been able to to go for quite a long period of time without having to pay its bills to Russia. Not that they're forgiven, but they're just being extended. So the um, that's helped Erdogan to have this sustain a high current account deficit at the same time, basically seeing no currency weakness despite you know 40, 50, 60, 70 percent inflation. Uh, so it was very, very short-term policy. It was, it was, it was one of the world's most shortest-term economic policies you can imagine, just to get him through to the election. He'll, he could be vulnerable between now and the, and the second round of the election. Very, you know, the currency could blow. Uh, he might be able to sustain it. So, the, uh, to, to me, that you know, this loss of hope associated with the fear now that Erdogan is going to win again for all of those people that have been investment depressed by this domestically. This could provoke some capital flight. I mean, in theory, some a lot of people with deposits should be questioning why do I want to keep deposits in a country where that I don't believe will is sustainable on you know through the course of this next five years. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's you know that if there is meaningful currency weakness, the marginal driver would be deposit outflow. And so there is that vulnerability that almost starts today because Erdogan's he needs to get obviously through the next two weeks, but then after that, the motivation to keep paying people high wages and dealing with inflation or one thing, but sustaining the currency without changing 
that's only been driven by the election. So a lot of people have said the currency is going to weaken no matter what after the election result. I was very convinced that the currency would appreciate if Kulich Darulu won, but since he hasn't won, or it looks unlikely to do so, you know, the likelihood of a meaningful currency correction and arguably one that isn't managed, one that they could lose control of. I mean, there's a lot of micromanagement of the economy right now, but if you know, beyond the idea that Turkey's just not going to invest enough from a private sector capacity for many, many years into the future, there is also the shorter term cyclical currency adjustment that effectively has to happen, in my opinion. I mean, you talked about capital flight, Mike. Presumably, there's been quite a lot of dollarization over the last three years because these policies, heterodox policies, have been going on for quite a long time now. And, and we know in the past, for example, in the late 1990s, you know, the economy did become extremely dollarized before, ironically, you know, the first round of Islamic party rule actually stabilized the economy and you started to see money coming out of dollars into lira. Is there much money left to actually come out of the country in that sense? Yes, because what they've done is they've provided a currency devaluation underpin for Turkish lira deposits. So you put money in Turkish lira in the banks, you get your Turkish lira interest rate, which is very low, to be fair, uh, relative to inflation. But they're also guaranteeing you that if the currency devalues, you'll get made whole. So in a sense, their mechanism, which was very creative, has reduced the dollarization on paper because it still means people are holding Turkish lira, but it's from a government perspective, they're effectively dollar liabilities. The difference is they're owed to domestic constituents, which they may decide they don't want to honor at some stage should they turn ugly. So if everyone was holding dollars in the Turkish banks, and then it would only be a question, do they have faith in the banks? Now there's a question, do I have faith in these Turkish lira deposit instruments and the government guarantee? You know, For choice, I wouldn't be a, a huge believer that those are going to be honored over the next three, four or five years. So do you want to just remind us and sort of crunch through the main sort of economic data points, budget, current account, you know, FX reserves, all, all the sort of key ratios for this? Sure. Without giving exact numbers, basically, because of the mechanism he's been running, they have been depleting, you know, borrowing as much as they can, and they, they don't have access to international markets in a meaningful way. So it's been more these geopolitical trades. They've been using every tool in the kit to keep the currency stable. You know, lots of indirect capital controls. You know, if you are taking money out of the country, now you basically have to tell people why you're doing it. You can get refused entry for money to be converted into dollars. So it's not a hard capital control, but there is a there's definitely a micromanagement of meaningful FX outflows. Companies are being told they have to keep money. They have to keep money in dollars if they want to be able to borrow cheaply, not in dollars in Turkish lira. If they want to be able to borrow cheaply, they can't be sitting on dollar deposits. So lots of mechanisms to effectively try and um, stabilize this. So that the end result of all that is they have no reserves. I mean, negative reserves. So they're running on fumes from an FX perspective here. Well, they've got, yes, we know they have strongly, strongly negative reserves. But that, to be fair, no one's funding them. So if, you know, if, if sentiment were to turn, they recalibrate, they could get for inflow into the country if interest rates rise enough to do that. But you know, with their current policy mix, they're absolutely, you know, it's, the word unsustainable is is feels like it's it's totally appropriate. Current account, though, that's allowing them to run a 6% current account deficit. In, in theory, this is an eat-what-you-kill economy. If they weren't so desperately trying to stabilize the currency, then Turkey's ability to grow should be constrained by the current account. And that's what I think Erdogan will face. They're already starting with the current account deficit, but all things being equal, they basically need to get the FX to fund their, their economy on an ongoing basis. And I think that's a reasonable assumption going forward, that that's the best case. They sustain this current equilibrium and then, and then all marginal growth is, is funded by new inflows, export driven or tourism or whatnot. 
but on balance, the current account and, and the, the FX policy have been totally artificial. Uh, budget, technically the budget, we're still you know, in the sort of three, 4% range. It'll be higher probably because of the election environment. And, uh, but, but inflation eats away uh, at a lot as well. So you know, we're still at a stage where you don't think the budget's a huge problem. One thing that they've done, though, is the liabilities because all these FX guarantees, you do start to worry about the state balance sheet, but you also start to wonder about the banks because they're lending basically um, at extremely low rates. And when rates do eventually go up, they're obviously gonna have to take a hit from that. So, so there is an element where the liabilities, it used to be always Turkish corporates that had the dollar liabilities, and that was a structural weakness and mismatch. That's now been shifted where everyone has access to cheap credit. The FX liabilities of the corporates have largely now been passed to the banks and, then, and, and the state in one form or another. So right now, I think it's we should think about Turkey, you know, OK, is it like Argentina? No, not quite. But it's it's moving in that direction. And one stage, people will start to say, OK, I can see a scenario where Turkey becomes a default candidate. I don't think we're there, but the, the, the pathway to that is clear unless there is a massive fundamental change in sentiment. And Erdogan's victory makes that very, very unlikely. So we're talking about potentially quite massive contingent liabilities in the banking sector. But what, what is roughly the proportion of the banking sector that's state controlled? So the direct state control is still relatively low. But one of the things that has happened is because the government is providing funding so cheap, the banks aren't, when they lend credit now, it's not a problem, right? So the private, it's not one of those things like Brazil where the state banks are doing all the lending and the private banks aren't doing the lending, or at least as the way I understood Brazil was. Now, the Turkish banks are willing to lend because they get such cheap funding, but they're being restricted from lending because the government doesn't want them to lend to, to actors that will take money out of the country or to sectors that will just blow up the current account deficit. So consumption led. So you can't get a mortgage basically nowadays uh, of any size. So, so the, um, uh, but what will happen when they, if they do go to orthodox policy, that's when it becomes complicated because that's when the private banks suddenly have a higher cost of funding. So any lending of the private banks will be uneconomic. Uh, assuming there's demand uh, you know, at, at the policy at the policy rate plus fine, but the government's going to be the, the growth won't happen, investment won't happen, so the government will be pushing through subsidized credit most likely, and so I think the role of the state banks will only increase because they will only have the capacity to to lose money basically as they lend, um, and I could see a scenario where the the encroachment on the private sector becomes greater. Could it be through acquisitions by state banks of the private banks? Could it be through forced recapitalizations? Well, you know, it'll be very, the next period of stress will happen when the currency blows up. Then you'll see, oh, well, what is the, the and, and interest rates rise, what is the implication of this um, in terms of the capital situation? Uh, I, you know, it's gotten a reasonable amount of attention, but it was largely on the view that we were gonna have a recalibration and a positive outcome associated with the election. If you can write off the next five years from an optimism perspective, then that uh, view towards the banks has to get uglier, I would have thought. Although the problem, I guess, even if the opposition had won the election, is that then they'd have reverted to a more orthodox economic policy. Interest rates would have gone up massively, I guess. And then you would have seen, you know, a, a fairly deep recession, no? You could have, but money would have flowed into the country because of the, you know, you've had 10 lost years. People are very depressed and the, the psychology, that would have been transformational. So so the, the math would have all been the same with the exception of foreign funding being very, very, and not foreign, even domestic. It'd been a, 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 a what's the opposite of capital flight, um, capital return um, could have been quite dramatic, I would have thought. 
Yeah, no, that's 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 that that's a fair point. And do you think we could move into an environment if things get really bad of sort of asset um, seizures potentially as well? Is that a, is that a possibility? I mean, what's been happening on the uh, governance side of things? Is it, has it been fairly quiet there recently? Well, I, I think yeah, asset seizures. Turkey's not like Russia in that sense, where you have these things that are always going to be worth money because of the commoditization or something. These are businesses that have to actually operate mostly. Turkey doesn't have commodities to to, to redistribute. So, so um, I think it's more just about making sure growth is happening. Uh, so I think you know, Erdogan's best tool to do this is to get more and more control of the banks and then use the credit mechanism. That, specifically the banking sector I was thinking about, because obviously I think it was Ishbank, wasn't it, where there was, uh, you know, there was some movement um, in the not too distant past. Yeah, so, yeah, Ishbank. There's, in a strange sort of sense, there's always been a legal claim for any government to 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 get to get to get the large, you know, a large stake in it because that's owned by Ataturk's legacy party, the CHP. It's being held basically in trust for charity. Or, but but so you know, if if this was another government in Europe, they might have just said, okay, we're transferring that to the state. Um, I think Erdogan's been a little sensitive to the messaging around that. So I've always used that as a bellwether. It's like, well, he has a claim to take, to take Ishbank. When he does this, that'll be a sign that he's going after all the banks. And I would still say that. But there's been a reluctance to do that, maybe partially to, to, to maybe the fear of, of domestic, you know, further capital flight or whatever it ends up being. So he hasn't gone that route. And maybe he doesn't need that direct ownership. Maybe he just needs, um, uh, you know, he, there's a lot of intervention and micromanagement of the economy uh, at this stage. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it'll just become more aggressive and the banks will basically decide that they, they're not putting any more capital in and when the state comes with a bid or whatever it ends up being. So I, I doubt it'll be, I doubt it'll be asset seizures. I think it might just be more that there's, you know, at very low valuations and, and, and real, realizing that there's no sense putting more capital into business, that the, the state might recapitalize banks that the private owners are not interested in doing. So if we sum up the likely course of economic policy, we're looking at sort of no no change, but it, it, unless rather um, there is some sort of crisis, in which case the authorities are going to be in reactive mode, aren't they? Yeah, they, they know they already have a problem, though. So once the election is done, they may actually create a two tier system where they raise rates from a currency perspective. But then they're lending they're lending at very heavily subsidized rates. It will require a lot of, of macro of, of micromanagement of the economy much more so than we've seen up until now, but they've already been very willing to do that. Uh, so, so, you know, if, if, if he really wants to totally recalibrate, you know, awesome, he can do that. He can decide he wants to be the president of all Turks again, but I, I, I really don't think that's going to happen. So my guess is that someone might convince him to raise rates, but he's, he wants to be in a position where he can, he can extend cheap credit. And the problem is he's already got that, the constituency that voted for him now, he needs to keep hold of, doesn't he? I mean, yes, it'll be some time after the second round before there's a, a, another election, but he really can't, I mean, he really can't afford to alienate the people that have, have been supporting, uh, that he's been supporting and have supported him in this election. So Totally, JP. And, and, and also, it's, it's uh, just a reminder, there are local elections, the mayoral elections, which, which Istanbul anchor all the cities. And he took very seriously last time he, he lost did. both of them. Those are a year from now. Okay. So it's very possible he just remains in populist mode this entire period. So that, that in turn then increases the possibility that we may see some sort of quite dramatic reaction in the market at some point, in which case, you know, it is then the function of how, 
how the government decides to uh, to react. Yeah, this, so, this 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 uh, he he may recalibrate, but I would just say the risk reward is terrible right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like. So just just going back a little bit, um, I mean, you, you know, we you, you mentioned briefly about the um, very strong performance of the market and the currency over the uh, past well. The over 2022 specifically. Do, do you want to say a little bit about that? Who was buying? What, if anything, foreign funds have been doing? I mean, as, as a percentage of the MSCI Emerging Market Index, Turkey is what, half a percent now, three quarters of a percent, something something like that? Yeah, it was sub half, and I think it's now moved just well, it, it, it's all going to depend on these the market moves, but it, I think it had gotten close to 0.4, I think. Yeah, um, but but so so minor, but 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 on balance, what happened in the last year is um, domestics were the main driver of the market, and some internationals who were willing to engage in Turkey played with it. Uh, and and the reason domestics were it was almost like a Zimbabwean sort of thing when when the only thing that's an inflation hedge is is equity. So housing was, and everyone went bought housing like nuts, and then they stopped issuing mortgages basically. Um, and and the, uh, the the move to equity was well anyone has you know inf- this is everyone's getting wage increases so all companies had pricing power you didn't matter whether you're high quality or low quality as long as you were not competing with imports and domestically driven you, you were able to pass on your price increases um, and and so so equities became an inflation hedge domestics played it like crazy there were tons of IPOs and then all those that are dedicated emerging European funds that always have to have some sort of weighting in Turkey engaged to some degree. Uh, uh, but I would say that it, it, you know, gem investors absent. No, they're, they're absent. I mean, it was largely the hedge funds, wasn't it? If anybody was playing it from the foreign side, and as you say, the um, because for the regional funds, I mean, as we know, some of the regional um, Chimia regional funds were actually wound up after the Russia debacle. Uh, but for the rest, I guess, with Russia no longer being present in the index, then you know, Turkey was almost the only alternative that they had for some of some of the money. Yeah, and, and it was it was sort of as long as it lasts, as long as Erdogan can keep the currency stable, which he has up until now, yeah. and, and have eighty percent inflation, you basically it's an awesome carry trade via equities. Yeah, is it is it fair to say that because I, I think that the banks fared reasonably well, didn't they last last year? The, the shares of the, of the of the main bank stocks they, they were they were the more laggards because they're not they don't have that pricing power. They were lending at the lower interest rate. Yes, the funding was there at the lower rate. But no, the banks have been more, they, that's something that did extremely well recently. The banks index had a great run on the view that we we're going to have some sort of change with the election because almost uh, the, re, the, the, the hike in rates was something that people would have viewed as very positive. Yeah. Um, so so uh, this was no more, more anyone that had a goods to sell. Um, you know, yeah, I thought that would be the case, and then when I looked at the um, I looked at the overall data, the banks seemed to seem to have actually held up surprisingly well. But as you say, a lot of that move obviously took took place this year rather than uh, last year. So presumably, if your uh, scenario comes to fruition, especially if we see currency weakness, then again you will see this split between the uh, you know the industrial stocks and um, and and and. And, and the banks with, with maybe the consumers, what, well, you'd expect the consumer plays to be relatively weak, I would guess, in that environment. Yeah, you had, you know, that traditional defensive ownership became a liability last year. So people became more aggressive. So then to the extent people have to have money in Turkish equities, it should end up, I would have thought, becoming very defensive again. Yeah. Um, and and the, the because the currency blowing up is the marginal risk here, anything that's got a dollarized price uh, cost, uh, pricing arrangement commodities or whatnot uh, is is something I think people will focus on. 
And valuations, it's, it's, it's sort of meaningless, isn't it, in a very, or almost meaningless in a very high inflationary environment to, um, you know, to talk about uh, valuations. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but there is, is there much in the way of inflation accounting? I, I, I don't know. They, they, in... they did not reintroduce inflation yeah, accounting. So you have to be forensic and granular. You need to understand what you're buying. Yeah. Uh, because, of, you know, what, what are the receivable days? You know, what's the inventory period? All that sort of stuff. You've got to do that work yourself because margins uh can be very very misleading now mike one thing perhaps we can um finish off by discussing is is foreign policy because um to some of us again from the outside um turkey's balancing act if i can call it that between um between russia on the one side and if you like the west on the other side not 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 just since the invasion of the Ukraine, but actually for a few years before that, has, has been somewhat um, bewildering. On the one hand, for example, they are supplying the um, Ukrainian forces with, with these drones, which have done enormous amounts of damage. On the other hand, in several important respects, they're also um, supporting Putin in, in, in Russia. And of course, they're still NATO members as well. And that, that has caused problems, particularly with um with Sweden, I think, and to, to a lesser extent, Finland's potential accession into into NATO. So, do you want to say a little bit about this, uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, foreign policy element? Sure, Erdogan's become very transactional. So, uh, Finland and, and Sweden, which he held up, Finland he's now let in, so they, they're in. Uh, but Sweden, he's continued to hold it up based upon PKK issues and whatnot, but, but which is the Kurdish militants. But but the the that are that are quite active as a as a community in, in uh, Sweden. But the main issue I think is Erdogan thought, oh, I have some leverage. I you know uh, we need every country needs to accept this. Uh, so that was you know he's upset a lot of people in DC. Um, my view is he is very quickly going to let Sweden in because he doesn't see the electoral advantage and he wants to show the U.S. and the West, look, I might continue to do things that you don't like, but um, let's, let's, you know, here's my capacity to please you. And most of what you don't like will actually be domestically oriented. And as long as I can keep my population from getting upset at me, um, you know, sort of leave me alone. So, so there, there could be a little bit of a recalibration. He'll still have political prisoners. Will he let one or two go? That would probably be a smart move, but I don't know if he will. Um, just to, to, to send some messaging. But he, he was very, very close prior to the earthquake to using Greece as a conflict with Greece uh, as a uh, pre-election tool because he was very nervous about this election. Uh, and he was rattling the cage very, very aggressively. And post the earthquake, he, he, couldn't, he, couldn't, yeah. he couldn't be hostile to international um, uh, actors in a meaningful way because of all the aid that was coming in and support. So, so I, I would have thought that in time, if he's, if he decides to go for power grab domestically, what I mean by that is disenfranchising mayors, uh, taking down up until now, he's only jailed Kurdish political leaders, taking down, uh, some opposition leaders, uh, for instance, formally banning the Istanbul mayor, who's been very active in this campaign. Uh, he's already been banned, uh, by the courts and, 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 ensuring his appeal doesn't work so he's then pushed out uh so he, he i i think erdogan if he senses there's the potential for political backlash domestically social instability that's when he may get a little bit wild geopolitically otherwise he'll retain the transactional try and play both sides um, the u.s may just feel like oh we have to deal with this guy you know they've been quite quiet pre the election because they didn't want to be, be become an election issue 
with Erdogan attacking the, the U.S. or any sense of favoritism. So they were remarkably quiet. But they will probably become louder in terms of complaining about abuses. But at the same time, knowing that they have to deal with them, my guess is that the periods of peak sensitivity will be when there's a, where, is there, where there are their headlines and, and the, the actual you know, protest and getting to a stage where he's repressing and jailing more people or whatnot. There'll, there'll have to be some responses to that. So I don't think the U.S. is going to want to actively send him, throw him too many bones. I think it's more a question of will, will, will Erdogan throw enough bones so that they, don't, that, that, that they realize there's some cost to, to becoming a little more hostile. Uh, Europe won't be, you know, doing anything. I think that that Turkey responds favorably to in terms of, let's say, visa-free travel or extension of the customs union. You can just treat that as sort of a dead issue. Uh, but, but I, I, I think geopolitically, you know, uh, if to the extent that Erdogan continues to try and defend the currency, he needs your Russias and your and your Saudis. Once the currency's gone and he's found a new equilibrium. Uh, then he's less sensitive to that because then the currency can become a little bit of a safety valve. But then he constantly has the inflation pressure, and because he's so populist, is he gonna is is he gonna do what he needs to do? So so I, I don't I don't think engaging with the West offers him too much upside. He's just trying to stop the downside from engagement with the West. For choice, if he's going to institutionalize his rule, and if this perhaps was the last or in two weeks the last democratic election we're going to have where he's he's in a position where he can basically in, embed his successor five years from now and maybe disenfranchise the key mayors, uh, then uh, then I, I would have thought the likelihood of some very ugly confrontation um, with Greece and Cyprus in particular, mostly over, you know, uh, the uh, seabed rights and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I wouldn't treat it as an impossibility, but he, he's not going to do it for the sake of it. It'll probably be something to help him uh, uh, you know, a little like a little like the game plan Putin seems to follow during periods where he needs people to rally more around the flag. Yes, I mean the classic authoritarian playbook. Although Putin, of course, took it you know way too far and ended up making you know one of the biggest strategic blunders since you know really since the end of world. Well, actually, to be fair, I, probably on a par with what the Americans did in did in Iraq. Iraq, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, totally. But I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, I think I think in Putin's case, he he he. Uh, it's it's amazing that he he's, he polarized the West uh, and, and created this uh, you know massive potential audience that could be supportive of him and then he totally squandered that when he went in you know if, if there were any any sympathy with Putin attack of of uh, Ukraine had he created an environment where Ukraine was perceived as some way having provoking as a, uh, he could have he could have been a much much stronger footing I would have thought so I think strategically I would almost say tactically he was inept. Uh, in terms of if he ultimately wanted to do this, he could, there would have, there was a better way to do this. Yeah. Now, in short term, Turkey relies to an extent on Russia for gas supply. I think, doesn't it? Absolutely, gas tourism, but but also I I, I think you know uh, there's there increasingly it becomes more source of funding because the, the Western markets, yeah, they're always going to be there for a certain price, but but it's you know Western funding is not going to be remotely in the in the ballpark that it was historically. Yeah. On the other hand, a bit like uh, Xi Jinping, you know, Erdogan probably knows a loser when he sees one, so he's not going to you know as you say that is a very transactional relationship with Russia as well. He's not going to throw throw his lot in with with Russia, and in any case. You know, Turkey is a NATO member and, you know, they have on the margin been been helping Ukraine as well. So I guess you could argue in that respect, he's he's played his hand quite, quite skillfully there so far. Uh, yeah, totally agreed. Absolutely. Yes. 
Um, so look, Mike, that is absolutely great. I mean, as always, um, for as long as I've known you, you're, you're a fount of knowledge on Turkey, a market I've always found, you know, when I was a sort of specialist strategist for the region in the late 90s, early 2000s, and also as an investment manager, I just found it an intensely difficult market. All markets are real time, but Turkey is, is more real time than most of them. And, and as a strategist, you know, I think it's a very difficult path to uh, navigate, but but you've done it very well. Do you want to say a little bit about Cribstone and, and your service? And because, um, you, you know, you've got a lot of very strong relationships with those investors who do still either invest in Turkey or regard investing in Turkey as an option at some point in the future. But also you look at um, more general macro issues as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, thanks, JP. So, so I, I, my view is usually what I'm trying to say to my clients and the clients I engage with um, are most of them have been sitting on the sidelines and trying to make sure that that's the right decision. There's been more engagement recently, wondering if now they, sh- having having been sitting on the sidelines and, and happy with that, uh, that, that are more you know, say regional focused funds, uh, wanting to understand to what degree they should gear up. And and I, I personally think my value tends to be I'm not I'm, I'm much less focused on what the next interest rate move is going to be. Uh, what what's happening in terms of the next inflation print? Uh, you know, there's plenty of people that are commenting on that. I'm always trying to take a step back and and comment on things where I think the market is missing something. Yeah. Where I'm always trying to think, hey, if I were Erdogan's advisor, what would I be doing to try and help him achieve his objectives? And you know, the the, uh, the uh, same same sort of thing in terms of uh, uh, you know, taking a view on. Is the opposition, for instance, pursuing the right policy so they are in a position? You know, I I've, I was very much, um, uh, you know, telling people, you know, do not engage with Turkey until you've actually seen the election result because, the, you know, the, the risks associated with this not going well are extremely high, and there's no, you know there's nothing bankable about this outcome. I am quite I am quite reassured though that the likelihood of you know protest is going to be extremely extremely low. So so what so sorry to backtrack. So from a Cribstone perspective. I, I tend to write whenever I have a high conviction view. I have a lot of you know bespoke calls uh, when when people want to ask about something, but it's not a day to day service. And most of it is Turkey because that's ultimately where I think I'm, I'm most differentiated and have the ability to provide perspective because I've covered so many companies and so many industries. And by default, to be able to do that, as you were mentioning over the years, you had to become a macro strategist. You had to become a political strategist. And importantly, you have to you have to have a strong view on global risk reward. So a lot of what I'm, I write about also globally has to do more with the Fed and, and global central banks. Um, and 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 it's partially because you, you could never really sell Turkey unless you had a strong view on those sorts of markets. No, context is everything in this market, you know, and um, for emerging markets generally, that's absolutely the case. And, and given your experience, that's extremely valuable. So look, Mike Harris, founder of Cribston Macro, thank you very much indeed for, for your time. Um, to uh, people out there who are interested in in Turkey and, and and Turkey in context as well, and particularly if you don't have the resources to follow it in in depth, and given the size of the market, you may not. But it is somewhere where you can make and lose quite large amounts of money. Please do get in touch with the IRF, and we will put you in contact with uh, Mike. And um, you know, if, if if you like what you hear, then you can subscribe to his service. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jeffy.